Hey. Hey. So how's everything on your end? Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> <sighs> I don't know. It's, it's too convoluted to go into. Yeah, yeah I know, I know. <laughs> All right, so you want to play this back and then... Play it back, delete know? it, and forget it ever existed. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Okay. All right. Hello. Hello. Hello down there. <laughs> So, is All there right. anything that you want to lead off with before we get into the show itself? No, we could just go right into the show at this point. Okay. So, you're listening to Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Roddy McDowell character on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Seas Network, now on Podbean. So, good evening, and welcome to the, I believe it's the third episode of the seventh season of Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Ball, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So tonight, a British character actor who made precious few films outside the U.S., former child actor who made his fortunes more in his adult career than what came before, a man who starred in well over a hundred films and dozens of television shows, many falling well inside the realm of cult, SF, and horror, but seldom is more than a minor role, sometimes even in a cameo. And yet, he's the one you'll remember when the credits roll. So join us tonight as we wend our way through some of the highlights of a significantly lengthy career of one of the world's most celebrated and beloved character actors, the inimitable Roddy McDowell. Roddy McDowell, a true character. Again, I am Doc Savage, uh, with you, Mr. Lewis Paul. Say hi, Lewis. Hello out there. Hello down there. I actually moved my mic, so it could be a little lower if I actually moved there. We were having some mic trouble. He recently repaired his old laptop to make it new. And as you may be aware by now, you've already heard a couple shows where we make no announcement of it because they were previously recorded. But we have finally cut off the albatross that was hanging around our necks to put it in college speak. We have left, after many years of threatening to do so on this and other podcasts, Block Talk Radio. It was actually them that did it, you know, because inertia is as inertia does, and we just kind of left it be, fine, you were getting by, it's not that bad, we've got it kind of on a maintenance plan, and all was well, and then they decided with the dawn of the new year that, fuck all you guys, we're going to go and just nuke everybody's accounts, and everything's going to disappear, unless you pay us, you know, one of our premium rates, which was easily three times what we were paying, except back in the first days when I took over from uh, my old buddy there, Matt, who was running the Big Papa Online Network with the Eye Level show way back when. So that was just not an option. There was, there's no way we we're going to do that, especially since, you know, yeah, we come on, we do these bi-weekly runs every so often, uh, but this is the only podcast officially still standing. Not that I'll never do another Third Eye, but the interview thing, I'm just kind of, I'm tired of it, let's put it that way. 
That's been concentrated more on doing the online reviews, mostly for the music these days. The formerly monthly, but at the moment kind of uh, sporadic roundup reviews over Third Eye. So basically, it's so that you people can access these episodes individually, you know, not having to go through a big jumble of them over someplace like Archive. And then we can continue to put them up for you. So we found these guys over, went through a lot of searching and trauma there for a couple of weeks. <laughs> and we finally found these guys at Podbean seem to be the best fit. And they've been pretty good. I mean, Unlike somebody like Blog Talk, they have decent customer service. They're very quick to get back to you. All seems very similar and very well. I mean, we were able to change, thank God, finally, get off the old Big Pop online network thing, which was, again, was Matt's, which we just kept, again, out of inertia for all these years, and make it a little bit more our own. Didn't come up with a clever new name yet. That may change in the future, but for now, you can find it easily. It's the Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine podcast. We're over at iTunes. If you're looking for the ID, if you're on iTunes, it's 553-402-044, for those of you who are really you know, anal about that kind of stuff. But you can find it easily enough, and you can find it on any of our sites, from weirdscenes1.wordpress.com, our Facebook, Weird Scenes 1, our Twitter, which is at Weird Scenes 1, or straight at Podbean itself, thirdeyescinema.podbean.com. They actually give you a little site there so you can access all the episodes that way as well, if you so choose. So uh, that's the big news. We finally, that took a bit. Uh, there's a lot of chaos involved. Ever since I'd edited all those episodes, the backlog of about five shows, you know, all those superhero shows. And mm. the two shows that will be upcoming soon, the Elvis show and the Stallone show from our season seven. After that, it was this nonsense, because surprise, surprise. By the way, you know, in four weeks, your account will be nuked. Uh, thanks. <laughs> So, anyway, they, they just fucked themselves, and we got a better deal. Finally, they caused us yeah, to move on. Yeah, and they sound... I mean, customer service is always a plus, nowadays especially, and yeah. a good customer service. And that you did all that in such a short amount of time, and really commendable. You did a great job. So, yeah. uh... It was not easy, let's put it that way. <laughs> a lot of busting ass. Yeah, yeah, nothing ever is. But, you know, here we are, so... That's the big news we have for you. Right. So we're discussing Ronnie McDowell tonight. Uh, what we've been doing recently, uh, last season, we kind of started. We did it sporadic once or twice over the other seasons with a director, maybe an occasional actor. But uh, last season, we picked a few people that we discussed. That was the show. Like, their standout movies or movies that stood out to us. And um, so we got a list of names. We mentioned... Elvis Presley, yes, that we did Stallone, and it's not a jokeathon. Yeah, we're we're very serious about these things. Yeah, we're gonna kid with you, you know, on occasion. That's what we're about. We have fun. Well, for the most part, you know, Sly got a good pass from us. Mm-hmm. Roddy McDowell was a, a great choice, and coming up, I believe, on the slate, Arnold. Schwarzenegger, Schwarzenegger. Schwarzenegger. Sean Connery will be the next one, hopefully. Sean Connery, yeah, yeah. So, you know, this is going to be fun, man. I'm really digging this because... uh, Yeah, you were very happy when we pulled those other ones. Actually, about two seasons back, when I suggested people like Joe Don Baker and uh, William Shatner and shows like that. He's like, wow, I really like these character actor shows, so... Yeah, I, you know, and I little plug for myself. You know, I not so much lately, but but I did spend some of my majority of my interviewing years interviewing people in person, occasionally on the phone, but mainly in person. And they were character actors, and it's amazing when doing research for these people. They're like, 
They're in everything. Mm-hmm. Shatner, forget about the Star Trek stuff. Joe Don Baker, I mean, some other names we're going to be hitting on, maybe some things we're going to consider for the following season. I mean, and in this case, Ronnie McDowell, who, growing up in the 70s, 80s... He was everywhere. He was everywhere. Less so in the 90s, but this <laughs> he seemed to be in everything. Even these odd offshoot things like McCloud with Dennis Weaver, he was like the, the uh, Clint, what was that Clint Eastwood movie? Uh, Fugan's Bluff, where he was a cowboy cop in New York. Mm-hmm. Maybe that was it. And uh, they had a, a spinoff called McCloud with Dennis Weaver, who was a Western TV star. Did a few of these things, and he did an offshoot of that. And then there was like McMillan and a wife with Rock Hudson, who will get name checked tonight. Yes. Uh, just. My calorie, and uh, oddly enough, Raleigh didn't do too many. I mean, he did do a night gallery, mm-hmm. but he didn't do too much sci fi aside from a big, big one. The big one, the Planet of the Apes series, which we will yes. also discuss. We're not going to spend a lot of time in that, because no. we also do want to talk about some other things. So go ahead. All right, so one of the first things that strikes one on about Roddy McDowell is the fact that he's an English actor, but one who, unlike nearly all of his peers, seldom actually worked on British film or television. Interestingly, the bulk of the man's work remains right here in the USA, to which his family moved and naturalized around the time of World War II. So, secondly, and somewhat unbelievably given his enormous, and really enormous, and fairly prominent resume as a well-known character actor, he actually started out as a child actor. He's one of the very rare handful who not only survived their demons and managed to stay clean, sober, and out of jail thereafter, but achieved even greater success as an adult, something that you really can't say about child actors as a rule. And third, while his greatest successes and his most notable appearances took place throughout the 70s, as you mentioned, and as you notice, we go along more in his episodic television guest roles than in the films he more or less tends to cameo in, but he remained quite active straight through to his death at the close of the 90s. And finally... While colloquially well-known it as being gay, he never actually came out or had any scandalous affairs, either during his lifetime or exposed posthumously. He was and remained very quiet, classy, and refined, something you can also kind of say about his acting. He's probably best known as one of the premier purveyors of nervous agitation and nebbishy secretiveness in television and cinema, but he also tried his hand, however campily as it may come off to modernize, at more traditionally masculine tough guy and player roles. And while we may cast a more knowing eye at such performances now, you really can't accuse him of ever really camping that up. He's not mm. nudging and winking at the audience, or even for all his building explosions of agitation, ever really overplaying things. And yet, for all the brevity of his, so many of his appearances, he tends to be the guy you remember, which says a lot given some of the big-name ensemble cast he's been part of. He's remained, particularly by the standards of American acting, one of the epitomes of class and refinement, always with a sense of a feral intelligence underlying that something else, perhaps a, a bit of something, in fact, was going on beneath each line delivery. So, he is an yeah. impressive actor. Yeah, yeah, I, I, you, you brought up a couple of points I wanted to speak to. Yeah, okay, so people not overly familiar with Ronnie McDowell that may be listening, you know, the folks interested in genre stuff, 90s, 2000s, to 2010s, whatever, blah, 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 know of him somewhat. See, the thing with him was, okay, like, uh, Paul Lynn, everybody knows Paul Lynn from various, he's bewitched. Right, bewitched. Great Halloween special with Kiss. <laughs> and Tony Randall yes. uh, from The Odd Couple and many, many films with Rock Hudson. Tony Perkins. Tony Perkins. But but the thing was, 
he was different. Roddy McDowell was different mm -hmm. because he could be scary. I did find, and correct me if you disagree with me, or you know, feel free to jump in there. I could, I found that some of these, anyhow, even even like Colombo things, he, he appeared in Peter Falk. He could be scheming and scary, like, and that's something you you kind of alluded to a little bit. He looked like one of those intelligent villains. He was one of those intelligent villains when he was doing character spots on, on shows that you don't know what's going to happen. He could turn on a dime. Yes. Really good. He's really good. And a good. he played good schemers. You know, just like... I'm not talking bombastic supervillains no. along the lines of Dr. Evil or, <laughs> you know... It's not a, a Victor very... Buno role. This He had this way of doing things that you could walk in and see, you know, underestimate him, I guess. He's this little yeah. skinny guy. He's kind of quiet. He's got the British accent with the clipped tones and kind of hiding in the background. He barely raises his voice above a whisper. Very conversational. And he's and very the, elegant. He's very elegant in yes. almost a David manner. Yes. I mean, very quiet and subdued in a certain sense. And yet, all of a sudden, he could go and do something that... You said scary. I don't know if that's quite the right word, but I know exactly what you're going for. He is believable as a dangerous criminal, as in sense of a, a mastermind, a Moriarty type, a leader of a yes. gang. And you can believe this. It's not like... Well, to me, those kind of people are scary. Yeah, I mean, it's not just putting, I don't know, Gerald Harper or somebody like that in that kind of a role where you might right. just kind of snicker a little bit. You know, okay, it's Roddy McDowell, but you know, he could put something into that role that you say yeah okay well he's a little guy but you might not want to fuck with him because he will figure out some way to make you hurt through other people through whatever you know, he's, a, he's a schemer he's, a, he's got machinations going on there and he also has a very very recognizable voice yes and ready for this a very very recognizable face yes which is really interesting why when he got which we will cover later on the Planet of the Apes films roles, he's he's covered under all this makeup. He's barely recognizable physically. So, what's the first film you would like to discuss? Well, actually, you might want to just give a slight bit of background beyond what I already did. He's yes. actually a he's... Londoner by birth, and the UK, any Anglophiles out there, anybody who actually is British, there's kind of a mix of, it's not just like, oh, they are from Britain. Yeah, well, you've got the Welsh thing, you've got the uh, Scotch thing, you've got the Irish thing, you've got people from the continent. It's all kind of mixed up in whatever, the Anglos, the Saxons, whatever. In his case, his father was Scotch, which is why you have that muck in the end there, mm. and and his mother was Irish. During the war, they said, you know what, let's just kind of get the hell out of this situation and moved over to America and remained there. And so therefore, they became naturalized American citizens. 1949, he was a child actor. To my reckoning, there wasn't too much that matters there, unless you're a big fan of Disney's and Westerns and kids' films from that well, era. But go ahead. Well, uh, well, there was one huge one, which for some reason, how green was my valley? Uh, 1941. It's a John Ford film with Walter Pigeon, Maureen O'Hara, blah, 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 Daryl Zanuck production, you know, mm -hmm. and it's heavy drama. He, he was quite good in it. Thing was, I never warmed to this film. He did do, he did these, these kid-friendly films, but not Disney-esque in a way at all. There was some kind of pictures like, a young boy loves an animal, it dies. You know, <laughs> Old Yeller. <laughs> yeah, you know, these kind of early kids' films were kind of traumatic for many children. Yes. Like, my friend Flicker, boy likes young horsey. Horsey dies. 
Or Lassie come home, you know, thank God Lassie didn't die. It wasn't Black uh, Beauty the same with uh, Elizabeth Taylor? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Black Beauty's along those lines. Yep. By the time there were naturalized citizens here in the family, he did do Macbeth. So, you know, smart, smart young man. There was a bit of a back and forth there where he was doing things like, you said, Macbeth. He did uh, Great Expectations. I mean, some of these were TV adaptations. He would pop up in shows like Marlowe. And he did, as he aged into his teens and 20s, oddly enough, he, I, I don't know unless we come across it, I don't think he really did do a picture of Rock unless uh, Rock Hudson unless it was later on, but he was also a compliment for Rock Hudson and that whole scene there that they managed to keep quiet until Rock died and all this yeah. blow up. But other other key titles that I'll throw out, which we may or may not discuss, was the hugely long Longest Day about uh, D-Day. The hugely long... I don't know if Roddy was hugely long. I, I didn't look into that. But <laughs> the hugely long Cleopatra. Yes, where he played Octavian. Yes. It would have been better if he had played John Hurt's role there, Caligula, in uh, Claudius. But even so, Octavian was a good choice for him. And another hugely long... The greatest story ever told. That was about uh, what's that guy's name? Jesus. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we're getting into it now. We're getting into the swing of things here. Was that the one with Jeffrey Hunter? Yes, it was. Another questionable character there. <laughs> then we—I don't know if it's a Disney movie, but he did do a few Disney-esque things. Oh, like that darn cat and Lord Love a Duck. Yes. And uh, <laughs> isn't that Monty Cliffs the defector? Yeah, which is notoriously notorious person. Now, out of the blue, Roddy does a weird old fucking movie. Um, the Love One? No, It. Well, yeah, well, we'll get to that in a sec. So, in the middle of all this stuff, 1965, he does a really freaking bizarre movie that yes. I just hate, but people love. The Loved One. I hate it, too. <laughs> it's an unfunny, big-budget British comedy co-production with MGM with an all-star cast. Basically, if you like Anjanette Comey, if anybody who remembers that name, you may be able to sit through all this nonsense. Otherwise, it's fucking painful. Robert Morse is in it, Jonathan Winters, Rod Steiger, Dana Andrews, Milton Berle, James Coburn, John Gilgood, Tab Hunter, Liberace, Roddy's in it, Barbara Nichols, Robert Morley, Lionel Stander, who got blacklisted for years, came back as Max and Hot the Hot, Ellen Napier, Paul Williams, Jamie Farr, and Bernie Coppell, your pal from the, the Chiller incident. You know, there's a lot of names in this damn thing. And yet, or maybe because of that, it's a fucking stinker. But people love it. So. I think one of the problems with that movie was that it was built around to be a star vehicle for Robert Morris, who at that point, 60, mid-60s, was a huge star on Broadway. I don't want to, to call your phrase, speak to his sexuality. That's not what we're about. Or black up. <laughs> Or maybe he was just not into anything, to be fair. But he was a huge Broadway star. He was very talented. Song and dance was his thing. And people were like, they were bringing him back until he nearly was dead. Yo, until like he just couldn't sell the tickets anymore. But at this point, he was huge on Broadway. And I think that they were like, oh, let's make a story vehicle for him. Surround him with all popular TV and movie people that we could afford. Do you remember who directed this movie? It was an odd choice, too. Tony Richardson. Oh, wow, what? Yeah. <laughs> with dude like Tom Jones with Albert yeah. Finney. I mean, he did a lot of costume stuff around this time. Yeah. And also, he did odd movies. I mean, they weren't populist films. They all kind of ended up kind of like weird. 
Also, it happens to be a black comedy about the funeral business, correct? So it's like, <sighs> yeah. and if I remember, it's in black and white as well. Yes, yes. I remember they colorized it at some point too. Like maybe let's put it back out there. Nobody cared. <laughs> I. I <sighs> <laughs> That's about my reaction. Uh, I, I, I <laughs> well, it's, it is a cult favorite for many people. I don't know why. It's, it, it's a cult favorite for many people. I think I don't know why, but I, I have some gay friends who like this movie, and occasionally it comes up in my feed like, "Oh, this was on TNT last night." Did anybody catch it? I why? But <laughs> but you know, I guess it's people love camp. Some people love camp. Yeah. And some straight people love camp. I love some camp stuff, but my tolerance... I love camp, but this one is, did not work for me. Well, it wasn't it was funny, and it wasn't no. dark, and it's hard to play funny and dark, and it's hard when you have... And I mentioned Robert Morris. It's hard when you have an unlikable... He, it just didn't work with him in this. can't have an unlikable leading man. And it tanked. It even tanked on TV. Nobody fucking watched it when it was on free TV. <laughs> Well, I heard that people didn't like it because it was too morbid. Yeah. It was like, oh, wow, this isn't funny in that respect. But it isn't funny, period. Even if you find that kind of, you know, if you're more like us and you're more gothic inclined and you do find humor in dark issues and dark things, it's still not fucking funny. It still sucks. There's a, there's <laughs> a British period piece made about three years later. They're called The Wrong Box. What uh, Dudley Cook, <laughs> Dudley Moore, Peter Cook... Peter Sellers, Michael Caine, and Oi. it's 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 a black comedy about the funeral business, but it's a period piece, so, you know, it's like, you know, turn of the century kind of thing. But it works a little better. It's also a problematic picture, <laughs> but there's that. So, next up, he actually makes, not necessarily a right turn, but gets on what, at the time, is one of the most popular shows on television. It was people were just kind of lining up at the gate, once it became a hit, to show up either in one of those window cameos, or if they had more time and pull, as a baddie on one of these shows. And in this case, they chose Roddy to be the bookworm for a two-parter, while Gotham City burns and the bookworm turns, if you're interested. Loads of fun. As one of the most obvious gay villains on a show that featured Liberace playing a against a gangster twin brother mind uh, Roddy's a scream he's all prim and grammar Nazi like he's bedecked from head to toe in crisp crunching leather you hear crunch when he moves as the bookworm with thugs named Pressman typesetter and printer's devil if you can believe that the two part episode is filmed much more atmospherically than most episodes of the run it's always been a favorite of mine I've, he always stood out as this bizarre character and something about the lighting and the shadow whoever filmed this damn episode or at least who lighted it was a genius because it really stands out among... Honestly, the Batman series is a memorable series, especially if you're into camp and pop art and knocking the bourgeois, if you will. That's why I'm such a fan among the youth culture of the time. Basically, the cops are like Keystone Cops through the whole thing. He's supposed to be this self-righteous do-gooder, but you know, it's so it's played so broadly, and it's so obvious the subtext that he's basically frustrated man-child with uh, some kind of gay relationship going on with Robin, who is a frustrated boy-child uh, looking up to this guy, living with their doddering aunt and this old man butler, and, you know, it's just, it's bizarre. It's a really amusing show. Some people hate it, especially the comic geeks, because it does really screw with things, but in terms of, as a piece of 60s art and comment on culture and camp, this show is priceless. And in the midst of all of that, in the midst of the better earlier seasons, the Bookworm episodes really stand out. I mean, they're really they're a piece unto themselves. And a lot of that is down to Roddy himself. Really plays this thing archly. So, what's your take on this? Uh, yeah, well, that's they're such an odd show, because you have, like, big stars. Cameo. Mm -hmm. Big. Oh. 
Biggish. Cameoing or starring as the yeah Otto Preminger right? Ice the Iceman, mm-hmm. Mr. Freeze. Yep, George, George Sanders. Sanders. Uh, Sammy Davis Jr. show up as a window one. Oh, the Rachi, window! You know the uh, window. Jerry Lewis window. show up as a window one. Uh, oh man, so many people showed up as the window one. You know, because Batman and Robin scaled the building. Well, <laughs> I'm not sure if it was a building or they were all walking along a taut rope and guys were like laying down, which would have made more sense. So. I get the impression it was a flat surface and they people popped that from the floor, basically. Yeah, I think that's what it was. And it would be, these guys would scale the building, right? Like, okay, throw it to Boomerang. And it's just scaling the building and they're tight. <laughs> um, the door opens up. It'll be a window, but look like a door. And it's like Joey Bishop, Frank Sinatra, yep. Dima, and, you know, I don't, I, I, I bet they didn't pay them either. It depends no. on you know, Batman. Yep. What's that? Yeah, okay. Yeah, and uh, it's it's so funny. Phyllis Diller, I mean, sometimes it was better than an episode. That's true. And you actually brought up the tights thing. Anybody that's read My Life in Tights by Burt Ward, it's a freaking hilarious tell-all book talking about Adam West and Frank Gorshin doing Riddler voices and Batman voices in the middle of an orgy and giving each other high fives. Some other really weird shit about Adam wanting to watch... Bert do stuff with his girlfriend uh, and sit at the edge of the bed like let's see this you know he talked about this thing about how his balls grew up like grapefruits which actually happened to me once from cystitis he talked about how apparently his package was too big so the networks had to go and like do something with his underwear to make sure that it wasn't too prominent and didn't offend the network censors hilarious tell-all book I'd highly recommend it for those who are interested in the Batman show <laughs> just since you brought up tights you know I didn't read that now you make me curious oh it's funny it's funny and the Best thing is, my drummer bought it for me for a birthday gift because you know he knew it was in this show, and I love the thing. So he's like, "Oh, I gotta read that too." So I give it to him, and he never gave it back. Oh. <laughs> so it's not part of my collection after all these years. <laughs> so that tells you something. But anyway, about him and about the book itself, we highly recommend that one. So anything else you want to say about that before we move on? No, it's my fun. All right, so now we get to the one that you mentioned, which probably is the first role that you were gonna really, I don't say remember him for, but the one that kind of stands out, like, okay, he's got a leading role, and he is sort of, I hate to say, coming to his own as an adult character actor in terms of film, which is It. And this is another one of those almost Hammer films of the period. It's much akin to the output of Tygon, Amicus, and labels like that, going under the Seven Arts banner. And those of you who know Hammer know that Seven Arts often collaborated with Hammer. They worked in hand-in-hand a lot of points. This is not one of those points. Roddy is a nervous Faye Nebbish who lives with his mummified mom and is crushing on his icy female co-worker, Jill Howarth, for some reason. She doesn't exactly return his affections at all, and his actions seem more driven by hubris and an ersatz attempt at climbing the corporate ladder than anything to do with either female character in the film. He's an assistant curator at a museum who discovers a statue that turns out to be the golem of yore, which comes to life seemingly at random until he discovers a scroll that when placed in its mouth brings it to life, much like adding or removing the E from Emmeth in the old story. He makes it kill off the nasty new curator who's brought in rather than promoting Roddy because he's too young for the job, destroy a bridge just to show off to the girl, and seems to allow more than direct a few other murders, a construction worker, his original boss, while getting really squirrely about the matter when an uptight American comes in to investigate and take both statue and girl off his hands. It's clearly riffing on Psycho, but it's too obvious. There's no surprise or tension, and there seems precious little motivation for most of the events in the film, so while it's atmospheric and very strange, it just doesn't really work in the end. That's funny. I never liked this film, yeah. and I, I, I got the feeling, uh, I could be entirely wrong, 
But it could be, right. But maybe they were also looking at Roddy mistakenly as like a younger Michael Goth. You know, from Crucible and all, all those lovely uh, Hammer-esque things. You know, he eventually became career revitalization Alfred in a lot of the Batman films. Mm-hmm. And he did a fine job with that. So, you know, he played creepy older guys for a career. He always looked older. Actually, yeah. remember when he was in... Um, Horror Dracula? Yes, the first the first Hammer Dracula, and he looked older, and he was actually a younger man. Yeah. There's a lot of people like that, and so I guess they probably looked at Roddy to be maybe a successor, because, you know, by 64, Goff is getting older, but he managed to keep going for another 40 years. <laughs> yeah, Horror Hospital, uh, with Satan's Slaves, and a lot of Yeah, stuff. I think he was even in The Dresser, that very heavy theatrical thing. He, I think he did stage two, so, you know. So he lived a lot longer than anybody thought. So I think they were looking at, you know, Roddy to be like a younger version of him. And I, th- I think it just wasn't a good fit for the film. The film was weak. The probably script was weak. Jill Haworth uh, was mainly remembered by me, at least, as, well, a bosomy it girl. She was in uh, Horror Snape Island, also known as yes. Tower of Evil, that, that failed Frankie Avalon. Uh, which is actually pretty good, but it's just uh, in my eyes. But I think it didn't really catch on because it was too strange that Horror House, another British horror thing, she didn't really – she wasn't a few things over here on stateside, but she really didn't cross over well. Also, this was for a mid-budget film studio, and it was bought, purchased, and distributed by Warner Brothers back when they were Warner Brothers 7 Arts. So. Right there, you can see that there's some problems. So it wasn't a good fit for him. I think he's just, I don't know, he probably didn't know how to play it. And can't blame him for that. And Jill Haworth, you're right, she's actually attractive. It's just, she's so icy and has no interest in him whatsoever. Mm-hmm. They're trying to have him play as if this is his you know, reason for doing everything, as if he's hot for her or whatever. And it doesn't really work on his side, and it definitely comes across like she has no freaking interest in him on the other side. So everything seems kind of random. You know, and he doesn't direct several of the murders. They just kind of happen. It's like, well, why is this all going on? Why am I watching this? <laughs> One of those yeah, sure, sure. So not immediately, but pretty soon after he does a thing for the Danny Thomas show, he winds up doing what becomes a huge thing for not only him throughout the 70s, but for kids growing up during that decade. It was really, really big and kind of, I hate to say it, but it sort of drove the shift between the headier you know, 2001 Soylent Green Omega Man, uh, silent running kind of sci-fi that you saw in the very late 60s, early 70s, you know, the Illustrated Man, all that sort of thing, Mm -hmm. into moving towards the Star Wars, the Logan's Run, the the more pulpy, youth-oriented, a little bit more driving and busy and less cerebral sci-fi that would come later, which was Planet of the Apes. And this was about the first one that mm-hmm. was formed a series that goes through all this decade. It's one of several rather good Charlton Heston sci-fi pictures around this period. Mm-hmm. Actually, maybe we should do a show on the like SF cinema of the late 60s and early 70s. Sometime. Oh, good idea. Got that down. <laughs> this one's got the famed damn dirty apes and especially damn you all the hell lines that everybody speaks uh, constantly in geekdom when he discovers the planet he's landed on is in fact our earth and that's the plot essentially he's an astronaut who winds up in cryogenic slumber and lands on a planet where the remaining humans are mute savages and slaves kept in cages used for menial labor while intelligent talking apes rule Roddy's Cornelius is the most sympathetic and human of the apes and thus helps Heston in his attempts at escape and resistance and therefore he's brought back 
back several times for Escape, Conquest, Battle, and the TV series. It's a bit ham-handed of a statement, and even though you can tell its intentions, it can certainly be read the way things do nowadays in a rather unpolitically correct way, given the rise of certain radical movements around the time of its release, but it's certainly well-intentioned, and it's more akin to Star Trek than anything else in that respect. It spawned several sequels, like I mentioned, a few of which weren't bad themselves, and a lesser 70s TV series, plus comic books, magazines, toys, you know, Migos. If you were a kid in the 70s, this shit was big and pretty much unavoidable. <laughs> yeah, so so big that when the featuring this cast and this this version of it, when the last one, which unfortunately was the weakest, too, yeah. Battle for the Planet of the Apes, which they reduced the budget to $25. Um, <laughs> very strange. It was like, go wait for a day. We don't have a shitty movie, so we're going to release the last one with all of them. So that was the thing. If, if anybody's in a convention somewhere, you see these posters that says, go wait for a day. That's what that was about. Because they realized that it was so bad, nobody would go pay to see it by itself. Okay, so, yeah, the first Planet of the Apes, you know, it still holds up. It's still very well done. Mm-hmm. John Chambers and a huge army of people doing their makeup. I mean... This was, for its time, some of the best makeup ever. And transforming these actors, really good combination TV stage people. I mean, they really worked hard. And they didn't discover too many years later that some of these people, you know, a lot of people say this nowadays, like, I watched nature footage or I went to the zoo to study the albums. They actually did, which is, you know, hey, that's that's pretty cool. And also features a really good Charlton Heston. Ronnie McDonald's amazing in this. I think, yeah. I'll be serious for a moment. I, I, I think actors really get a challenge, a kick, a zen booster, let's say, when they're encased, in, they're unrecognizable to the public. Yeah. So what's their challenge now? They wanted you to believe in this character, take it serious, because it wasn't jokey, this first one. And they want to try to give you a performance. You're going to remember all these people were good. And they're running around in rubber ape masks. It's ridiculous. But yet you're not really laughing at it because... Well, there were appliances. I mean, for some of the background people, maybe just, you know, save time. But there there was appliques. This is like layered on. They were sitting in a chair for hours. Muscles like a whole mask over the head. He's quite good at Roddy. Classic film. And everybody knows the ending by now, which is still... You know, it's funny. I hadn't seen this for about easy 15 years or more. Mm-hmm. And I, I pulled out, oh, I have it on my shelf. I have the, I must have bought the Blu-ray cheap, but, you know. And I watched it. I guess, wow, this is really good. It's creepy, too. Because there's three astronauts that crash on that planet. And, oh, here. And well, they don't know until the end. And they're being chased by these apes on horses. It's very shot. Yes. And it's not until that last shot where he rides with Jira, no, uh, the slave girl he liberated right. want to make his wife or whatever. No. When he rides with her uh, they're on horseback, beer back. <laughs> beer back. And out on this beach and on then... the beach. And then they show you first the stat the the shadow and the sand. And then the camera pulls back and pulls back and pulls back. And then you see like this wreck of the Statue of Liberty buried in the sand. It's like wow. Yeah, that'll be us soon after Trump. <laughs> so, yeah. It had such an effect on me that when I was a kid and I went to this, this, to Liberty Island, it, it freaked me out a little bit because I had, like, a mental flashback. Like, oh, jeez. 
<laughs> wow. All I remember about the Statue of Liberty was we, we couldn't see the crown because they were working. One of the many times they had to repair the crown. And yeah. so we only got to go partway up the statue. And you're in the middle of this metal clanging thing going up the spiral staircase that goes on forever and ever and ever. Scary. Isn't that staircase scary? Yeah. It's, and it's tight. It's kind of claustrophobic. But the biggest thing was, like a lot of things in New York City, like uh, the old Yankee Stadium, for example... Or you can smell as human piss because the bums are in there pissing up the stairwells. So uh, <laughs> picture this in the blazing heat. It's stuck inside this metal statue, clang, 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 working up a huge-ass sweat, and all you could smell is urine. That's all I remember about it. I was like, wow, that was quite an experience. <laughs> I think a lot of people go there thinking it's different. But once you're inside and hollow and you're looking up, it's like, that's a staircase? I'm surprised with all this time. They didn't do anything all this time they had. <laughs> and they closed it for like five years uh-huh. to do whatever cleaning job. They didn't put a better staircase in there. Come on. And how many times are they going to redo it? Because that crown thing, that was back in the 70s. They did that again like three times since. Like How many times are you going to repair this fucking statue? Come on. <laughs> do it right. So anyway. So from there, he does a couple of things. I see one of the credits was Five Card Stud. I think that might have actually been a spaghetti western, no? Or a fake one? Uh, no, no, that was uh, Five Card Stud, I think, was with Mitchum, and oh, maybe okay. also D. Martin. Yeah, wow, what a memory I got. Yes, it was. I guess 68, that's, that's you know, Martin still had, you know, surprisingly, uh, at, at some point in his career, Martin started gaining, D. Martin started gaining accolades for some of his dramatic work, you know, after he split with Jerry, he started, you know, doing some heavy stuff, and... You mean like the Matt Helm series? <laughs> aside from that. <laughs> Those are uh, fun. They're fun. But, but uh, you know, Robert Mitchum's Robert Mitchum. And, you know, I'm sure Roddy was in this as either comic relief or maybe The Undertaker or maybe a... Uh, I, just, I saw this film a long time ago, so I can't really comment on it. Okay, so anyway, he does not long after. It takes a thief, which is a great Robert Wagner series where he's a yes. top-notch cat burglar working for the government as a condition of his parole. The second season was a bit lesser, despite their moving to Rome for filming and pulling in Fred Astaire as his hustler father. But I don't recall the specific episode Roddy's in, though. Boom at the top. I don't either, but yeah, it's it's good that you brought that show up because a lot of people don't really mention that. And while we had I Spy, and its later season, they were also doing the globetrotting thing, actually, to the point where Paul Nash was in this, an episode they did in Spain. Yes. Sure. It takes deep was it's pretty much the forgotten the forgotten Mission Impossible, you know, because he he did some cool stunts and he did some odd things, you know. He was sort of like the the dick swinging version, the American dick swinging version of a saint, you know. Yes, and actually, it's a it's a heist series which you don't see very often. I had vivid memories from my childhood of seeing, I guess, reruns. I don't know. Of the episode that he did, he did a couple of them with Susan St. James yes. from McMillan and Wife. Susan St. James. And I think one of them was actually the pilot or something. And they had done this thing, and I was looking for it in films forever. I'm looking at Top Copy, and I'm looking at Grand Slam, and I'm looking at all these, you know, basic heist films. You know, the Thomas Crown Affair. Where's this damn scene where they're kind of hanging over there in the ropes down in this church and trying to get down to where this uh, crown jewel or whatever the hell it is is in this device with all the lasers? And, you know, nowadays it's been on a million times, but it was from a certain period. And there wasn't that many like this. Turned out that's what it was. It was from It Takes a Thief. Really good stuff when it's firing in all cylinders. 
Um, there are points, like I said, the second season it kind of drops a bit. Despite having what you would think would be advantages to it, I guess they just lost the budget and lost some good screenwriting. Maybe started repeating themselves. But I am shocked that it is forgotten by a lot of people because it really is good. Mm. I mean, if you yeah. do like Mission Impossible and you do like heist films and you do like something a little bit lighter, like the Avengers or Bond films or you know Adam Adamant or Jason King, you know, a little bit of that kind of stuff thrown into it. It's really, especially for an American series, it's really good. I actually prefer it in some ways to Mission Impossible because it's not so grim. It doesn't have that dark ritualistic feel. It's more fun-loving and swinging 60s, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't have Milfy Barbara Bain in it either. <laughs> the funny thing, I was watching a series the other day. Oh, I know what it was. It was the Darren McGavin Mike Hammer, which is actually a really good series oh, yeah. from the late 50s. And who shows up and I'm like, you know, this old broad don't look half bad. She's kind of like swinging it around like... That couldn't be Barbara Bain. She's, is she that old? Sure enough, it was Barbara Bain, and like 10 years younger, flaunting it in the exact same kind of Lauren Bacall-esque role in the Spike Hammer series. <laughs> and, and, and you kind of got, hmm, maybe Lewis was right. <laughs> well, this is 10 years earlier, so it, it worked more. <laughs> but yes. Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> same role. Anyway. So next up, he does a song that I kept singing throughout the entire thing. Hello down there. It might have been like a Matt Monroe or something like that. Horrible, horrible. Actually, what I wrote was awful, awful, awful Tony Randall Janet Lee vehicle with Jim Backus, Mr. Magoo, and Thurston Howell himself. Charlotte Ray of the Facts of Life, plus the whiny, nebbish Arnold Stang, who voiced way too many commercials and cartoon characters to be forgotten, not to mention had a primo role in Hercules in New York with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And strangely, Richard Dreyfuss and Merv Griffin all show up in this damn thing. It's basically about these people living in an experimental undersea home, but the, quote, humor is strictly TV sitcom of the era, i.e. painful. They used to show this one constantly in afternoon slots throughout the 70s and 80s before it got banished to its deserved watery grave. Do you remember anything about this one? Yeah, I do. And it's funny because, you know, for a good long period of time, Tony Randall and, and Rock Hudson, they were like the go-to guys for, for you know, comedy team. In yes. these, you know, comedy, some comedy dramas, you know, The Rock with Doris Day, all those things. Oh, pillow talk and all that, yeah. Yeah, he was his best friend. Six to get egg roll. And he... You know, that kind of thing, right? And 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 um and Tony had girlfriends in those movies. You know, they if they pulled it off for him, you know, it's I don't know how, but they did it, it worked. <laughs> and this is like they stopped making those kind of things by the late sixties, early seventies. You know, Rock disappeared, he tried doing some harder edge stuff, then moved to T V. And with this film it's funny, you got Tony Randall and Janet Leigh, and it just, they did not work as a couple. No. And that was one thing that sunk the picture. The other thing is that there's this time period now where rock is getting heavy. We're talking 69, folks. We're almost 1970. Rock is getting heavy, but filmmakers making family pictures, and this was an Ivan Doris production. Yeah. Um, probably filmed down on the flip set. They see the directors of Jack Arnold and Rico Browning who played the creature from the Black Lagoon in one of the creature films. So they probably thought it was a great family film. It just didn't click. All cylinders, boom. You talk about Tony Randall pulling off some of these kind of roles. It's funny. I thought of him in, he was in a Eurospy film. I forget which one it was. I uh, like that. You remember which one? What was the name of that one? Do you remember? Oh, that was that was with Herbert Long and Santa Burke. It actually was a decent film. It's just like, what's Tony Randall doing here? Uh, <laughs> 
he's kind of like accidentally confused for a, uh, a spy, even though he's not like a spy, insurance yeah. guy or something. And he wants to get chased. by Klaus was in that, too. And I was also thinking about if he can pull that off, they put Tony Perkins against Bridget Bardot once. I know we talked about during our Bardot that's, show. Yeah, that's it. Oh, that was ridiculous. <laughs> well, also, that was, that was a, a very French Eurocentric picture, that one, where yeah. the spy the spice spoofs are more international and no matter how low the budget those things were kind of like anybody could appreciate them you know they kind of cross genres they cross age groups you know but mm -hmm. when you it seemed like the French ones didn't really work too well and that was one of them but anyway Kiss, the, Kiss Bing Bang or something like that that was the Tony Randall one I think what was that name oh, if I remember uh, later I'll say it uh, anyway so, next up he does an episode of Night Gallery, and this is another one of those ones that stands out to me, that when I think of Ryan McDowell, this is one of the roles and performances I remember. It's one of the first ones, it might have even been the pilot, and it's the part he does, because he usually did like two or three in the show, was The Cemetery. It's a great early Roddy horror television role, where he's hamming it up as a dissolute, hard-drinking southern rich kid in garish hippie clothes, who moves in with his dying uncle to ensure he gets everything in the will, and that that happens soon. The gotcha is that this is an old creepy antebellum mansion with many portraits on the stairwell, one of which is of the family cemetery, which seems to keep changing. Wait, where did that corpse come from, and why does it keep getting closer to the house? So you can imagine what happens. It's really, really good. If you're going to say some Night Gallery episodes are actually scary, because a lot of them are pretty camped up, this is one of them for sure. Very, very good. Yeah, it's a really good episode, uh, and Night Gallery had some really, actually, terrifying things there. Uh, I think they got some shit for that, too. Mm -hmm. Really good stuff. So, uh, next up, well, not immediately, but close enough, he actually directs his one and only film, Tam Lin, also known as The Devil's Widow. It's a British film distributed by AIP, directed by Ronnie McDowell, and produced by Alan Ladd Jr., the skipper. Hey, little buddy! <laughs> The soundtrack prominently features one of my all-time favorite bands, Pentangle, with Jackie McShee, John Renborn, and Burt Janch, for all you Celtic British Isles folk rock veterans out there. Think Fairport Convention with more solid playing and an eerie yet jazzy feel. And that brings us to the film itself, which is exceedingly strange. I've heard vague comparisons to the likes of The Wicker Man. That's way off base. But I can understand why someone might say that. It's a bizarre slow-burn drama. It's a Maggie May story, those of you who are Stewart fans, about the young Ian McShane falling, for whatever reason, for aging, demanding Hollywood diva Ava Gardner, who's rich uh, enough there's to There's a reason. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe ten years before, but who's rich enough to live on a scenic hillside castle and surround herself with free-loving hippie kids, some of whom she picks to share her bed and convince her that she's not as old as she actually is. McShane, despite failing to win her affections in any sense beyond the physical, does manage to arouse the old bitch's anger when he meets a rather prim Stephanie Beecham and decides it's time to leave and get with someone in his own general age group, and Gardner's not about to let him go. What all this has to do with the old folk ballad about a guy getting led astray by the Fae Queen only to find his doom, well, I guess you can see that, sort of, but it's quite a stretch. In irresistibly beautiful ethereal goddess the 50 plus Ava Gardner is decidedly not it's very much of its period and it does seem rather slow and confused in tone in several respects but it's very well filmed surprisingly so and there's an eerie almost occultic feel hanging over the whole production yeah. leaving a question as to whether it really is just a romantic drama sort of a thing or more of a horror film 
And they've got a reasonably interesting cast for those who follow Hammer Films and Dolly Birds of the Era because not only okay, you got Ava Gardner, you got Ian McShane, you got Stephanie Beecham, but Joanna Lumley, you know, Patsy from AFAB, Jenny mm-hmm. Hanley, who's in a lot of Hammer stuff, Madeline Smith, who was actually, a, believe it or not, a Paul McCartney cast-off and also a Hammer diva, if you will. You know, a good-looking cast, but... I don't know. I mean, I did like it, but it was a strange film. It's a very slow burn, and you kind of got to decide how you feel about it. Where does this really land? Is it a horror film? Is it not? Is it just kind of oddly atmospheric and occultic? Is it, you know, just a straight-up drama? How do you classify this damn thing? And maybe that's why Roddy never made another one. I don't know. But considering that was his one and only film, it wasn't like, oh, that film sucked. That's why I never did it. It's like, no, it's actually pretty decent. It's just a strange film. Yeah, it's a very strange movie. It's very arty. It's very... Well, it's not the 60s anymore, but it's got that feel of that that time passing. And, yeah, it's very much heavy to that British uh, mysticism, you know, the, the occultic stuff going on there. And I'd always wonder, like, what was he into? Because, you know, personally, you know, you know, what was going on with him, you know. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff of interest in there to him to make this kind of movie. Yeah. There's always been stories about Ava, you know, who would just transfix men, the, you know, the most stoic, you know, like Frank Sinatra nearly fell apart just trying to be with her several times. And, and uh, Oh, she was a hot number in the 50s, no question. Yeah, but as she aged, she became a bit of a, you know, a succubus, you know, she would just draw. <laughs> well, you know, no, maybe this is something he knew. Maybe she was that kind of older woman with power, true, who who was drawing this crowd around her. And part of the film alludes to that. You know, that's part of the plot. Yes, it is. You know, and so maybe, maybe he was like they're having a night, hanging out with a bunch of her. Probably she was surrounded maybe by young guys. You know. Maybe she was a fag hack, too. You know, there, there was always, which, what does that mean, folks? Okay, back in those days, that term applied to an older woman of wealth who surrounded herself with gay friends. Yes. And It, and it still so, does apply that way, but nowadays it's more just any woman who really you know, goes out yeah, of her way yeah, to hang around. Totally man, so. to say that, but back then it was mainly an older woman. Yes. And usually one of wealth and taste, which, hey. Um, <laughs> all right, on to the next movie. Okay, so next up, he does get together with Rock Hudson, actually. Pretty Maids All in a Row, directed by, and this one blew my mind, Roger Vadim, the Svengali of many a career, from, of course, Bridget Bordeaux to Jane Fonda to even Catherine Deneuve. It's an early slasher film with an emphasis on gorgeous female cast members, which that part you would expect from Vadim. Angie's a teacher, being Angie Dickinson. Roddy's the principal. Rock's the ex-footballer come assistant principal who screws his way through schoolgirls and teachers alike. Keenan Wynn is the bumpkin local sheriff, Hail Satan. And Telly Savalas is the detective inspector brought in to investigate all these killings at the local high school. 
as there's only two suspects throughout, it's pretty damn obvious who's to blame for all this. But to be honest, the crime slasher element is almost beside the point and very much played down. This one's all about Vadim's time-tested eye for the world's most stunning women, filtered to as much sex as possible, preferably with a hint of kink, insanity, and perversity, though we're really not talking something like Jess Franco here, so, you know, tone back our expectations. It's highly enjoyable, though it's a bit too demure. There's not enough flesh to satisfy the guys, there's not enough mystery to satisfy that crowd, and there's certainly not enough murder and mayhem to satisfy the horror fans. Hell, there's not even enough of a starfucker element, given just how briefly most of the big names appear herein. It's pretty much all about Rock and maybe Angie being a little bit more liberated and kinky than you're used to seeing them. You notice we haven't said too much about Roddy? That's because he's effectively little more than a cameo part here. Unfortunately, this is the case with a lot of films he appears in. But just listen to these people. you got Rock Hudson as Tiger. Yes, that's his nickname, uh, screwing his way through the school. Angie Dickinson as Miss Smith. Telly Savalas as the P.I. Roddy McDowell as the principal. Keenan Wynn as the local sheriff. James Dewin. That has to be Scotty from Star Trek. Yes. I don't know what the hell yes. he's doing in here. Amy Eccles, who is from Group Marriage and Paradise Alley with Stallone. Very cute girl. Joanna Cameron, uh, Isis, my girl. And also in The Amazing Spider-Man, some memorable episodes. Margaret Markov, who was in Corman films like White Mama, Black Mama, and more. There's a lot of good-looking women in this damn film. And if you really want to see Rock, I don't say camping it up, but doing his best to prove his airsets masculinity as a, you know, I'm going to fuck every girl I see kind of a thing, this is the movie for you. Well, what a mess this movie is. You know, first of all, I had, I think I mentioned uh, not too long ago that around this time period, because uh, we did a brief segue, you know, to mention Roddy and Rock being friends in real life, that they yeah, were trying to move Rock Hudson to more more harder roles. You know, now that the you know Namby Pamby, Doris Day, Rock, you know, Leave It to Beaver, things are all done with, and nobody's gonna go see them, right? <laughs> So, you know, Rock did a, a, a war picture. Uh, maybe Claudia Cardinale, one of these ladies called Hornet's Nest. It's half decent. War with two picture. And then he he did this, the Alpha Vadim. You know, guy's not stupid. He's probably, you know, bigger. And, but in 1971, nobody still, it still wasn't out. Hollywood knew, but nobody knew. Best kept secret in the world. But here's the thing. You take this guy. Now, remember, he's... He's the Ivory Snow boy. Yeah. You know? He's, you know, K. Sarah Sarah, Rock and, and Dad, Doris Day, Rock and Pure White, you know, Holmes, family, children. Think Sandra D, all you Grease fans. Right. Yes, thank you. And so, <laughs> Rock. Yeah, it's light by today's standards, light by sexploitation standards, by Rock Hudson standards. It was a mind blower. People did not know how to react to heat pushed it one further when he did Embryo after this, which is that weird movie with Barbara Carrera, because he, he creates an embryo, and then he bangs it for the rest of the picture. <laughs> so, <laughs> very strange career moves by Rock Hudson. Uh, almost a career killer. For seconds? <laughs> yeah, if he didn't go into TV after this. I do remember Roddy in this, but yeah, it's, it's a little bit larger than a cameo, but nothing too much more than that. Strange movie. Now, Roddy skipped out, as did some members of the early cast, of uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, which a lot of people hate, and it is boring, but I did like the whole bit with the mutants under the Earth worshipping the atomic bomb. That was actually a pretty cool idea. But he skipped that one and went right to the next one, Escape from the Planet of the Apes. I don't have too much to say about the rest of the Planet of the Apes things until we get to the TV series, but if you want to expound on it, go right ahead. Yeah, well, Escape, yeah, Roddy, like you said, he, he, he set out uh, beyond, who was he replaced by? Somebody odd, like 
Salmonio is somewhere else, somebody like that. And so he returned for escape. And well, because everybody was bummed out by by beneath because the world ended and they all died. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. You spoiler, damn it! <laughs> but no, that's how the movie had. Uh, actually, a quite good James Franciscus, and a, a still good Charlton Heston. To talk about glorified cameos, the guy was in it for a few months. Strange, strange subplot there with the mutants. It was way above its time and mm-hmm. very weird and downbeat. And then the film got. It's a strange A-list sci-fi movie. I mean, it's definitely one that would come up. It's not entirely successful because a lot of odd things going on there. But so anyway, Roddy was in, in that, but he's back in Escape from the Planet Apes. Well, how how did him, Zira, his wife, and another fellow uh, scientist, also an ape, come? to Earth in 1971. Well, they found James Francis's ship and they repaired it and they hit the same time warp thing that threw Heston and Franciscus back into the future. They went back into the past. Except that they land. They said people saw them come out of the capsule, so obviously they're wearing spacesuits. You can't hide that. And they talked. They spoke. So right away, the whole world freaks out. They put them on trial. But then, yo, it's weird how the 70s were so downbeat. This kind of reminds me of something, how the 70s were just not all cream cheese and apple pie because they killed them. They were shot down dead at the end of this movie. And the only thing left, Ricardo Maltabon, a really good, a smaller performance, as a circus owner, saved their child. Zero gave birth. And he was a circus owner or something, and but they like, they shot them dead at this picture. What the fuck? The seventies um, were a grim fucking decade to grow up in. I mean, yeah. the eighties were almost. I mean, okay, yes, they had a lot of problems, and they were too superficial and too campy and too safe in a lot of ways, and caused a lot of the problems. You know, this kind of safe parenting shit that is still making a mess of our lives today uh, came out during that decade, but. It was really kind of welcome at the time because it was like, oh, thank God it's not so freaking dark. <laughs> because everything was dark and grim in the 70s. I don't know if it had to do with Watergate, if it had to do with Altamont, the death of the hippie dream, too many bad drugs, you know, a lot of overdoses of all the, the rock stars that everybody looked up to. I don't know. But it was just a grim decade. For all the fantastic movies and interesting music we got out of it, it was really dark. So. Yeah, I mean, definitely, that is kind of the marker of that time period. Three Dog Night, you know. But Gil's Run, so anyway, um, Conquest followed, 1972, and it has the child grow up to be played by Ronnie McDowell again. He's Caesar? Yes. By now, things have caught up, and they start Caesar, the son of Cornelius and Zero, played by Ronnie McDowell, who played his own father. So now the, the series is catching up to the first film. It's going in that route where a disease, uh, some kind of virus, has killed off most of most animals except apes for some reason. So now they've made apes, simians, orangutans, chimpanzees, you name it. They made them companions, and they made them slaves. And they figured, oh, they're more than just a dog or cat. They could cook. They could drive my car, clean my house. And then it's a very uh, thinly veiled reference to slavery. Well, as was the first, just in reverse. So, yeah. Right, yeah. And so what's going on here? Don't forget, he's, he's super intelligent. He can speak, but he's on the DL. 
because they're going to find out that he was the son of Cornelius Caesar, you know, from like 30 years before or whatever. Although it's only two years later. So, uh, actually, though the film was released in 72, it takes place, I think, in 1980-something, maybe? Mm-hmm. You know, just to give you some perspective, because it's a bit futuristic. Briefly, I think he's really good in it, and Don... <sighs> Primarily TV guy. He did some films. Don Matson or whatever. Don something. Played this, the uh, governor or something in this. And he's just like real white bread, Republican type racist guy. And interesting that the original version of this film, which finally resurfaced on one of the Blu-rays, at the climax of the film, Caesar taught other simians how to speak. And then they created a huge army to get back at those people who treated them terribly, the humans. And aside from a handful of people, and in this case, but still the 70s, is a black brother who's also been repressed. You know, very interesting stuff going on here. Don, Don Madsen, I've done something, I remember that guy was, you know, Caesar killed him. But in the cleaned up version, they probably did some test screenings, you know, he spares his life. Very interesting movie. So the series is really heading toward, like, Wow, I mean, how can I top this? I much like the Matt Smith Planet of the Apes films. I really liked those, and I thought War was terrific. I really loved that one. He's going to spend the rest of his life trying to make the next Batman film. I don't know what's up with that. <laughs> but uh, Matt Smith, uh, that Matt Smith? Yeah, Matt Smith, Matt Reeves, whatever his name is. The guy that made the three Planet of the Apes films, the right. new ones, did a terrific job there, too. Anyway, back to Roddy. A year later, it, somehow the budget got slashed. Come off, you know, come off a couple of good films in the series. Rather than take your time and, you know, write a good script, they decided to go very close to Planet of the Apes and get, like, leading up to the point where the, you know, humans are slaves and the apes are the boars. It's a battle for the Planet of the Apes. has this namby-pamby thing where this some of the apes have human friends. <laughs> and there's, there's mutants brought up, like, from... Uh, beneath, but they don't quite have the capabilities of uh, the mutants from beneath, and the budget is, is visibly much, much lower. It looks like they they, 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 they shot in a New Jersey parkland. I mean, the, the vehicles, there's vehicles in this that look cheap, <laughs> weaponry looks cheap, the costumes look cheap, and for the first time, visibly, you could see many of the supporting cast apes are pullover masks, yep. you know? And that's probably why they headed to the TV series after that. Yeah, after this, they headed they headed to TV with Planet of the Apes. With I was going to say, the only real change here from the films is that yeah. Roddy is no longer Cornelius or Caesar, but another character just like Cornelius named Gallant. The main cast, otherwise, it's these two nobodies, kind of sucks. But the series itself is like, eh, it's not terrible, it's not great. It's kind of typical for sci-fi TV of Sarah. I agree. I can't really say anything else besides that. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, jumping all the way back to Escape from Planet of the Apes, after that, he did Bitten Off Some Broomsticks, he's still doing kids' movies, and he does Ironside, which is Raymond Burr's other big TV series, Beyond Perry Mason, where he's a wheelchair-bound private eye with a black assistant, Don Mitchell. That's all I really recall of it. You know, it's kind of early on. And then he does Columbo. He starts working his way through mystery series, which is Robert Falk's Krusty Grumshoe series, where you see the murder, you get to figure out how they'll get caught instead of the usual, where it's like who done it and how. You already know all that. You now you're just watching to see them get caught. Which actually is not a thing that I enjoy in terms of how to do a mystery. 
But, you know, it was different for its time. It was a big shocker, and everybody kind of loved it for being different. And, you know, you like the character, you don't like the character. Everybody knows how to do them. Hey, excuse me, excuse me. You walk out the door, come back, you know. Hey, I got some dirty shoes on, you know, scummy old. He, he always looked like he was a bum that just came off the street. And it is entertaining for what it is, which is why it lasted for so many years. I don't remember the particular episode that Roddy was in, which was Short Fuse. But nonetheless, he, he was everywhere in the 70s. And when it came to TV, he usually had a fairly, I don't want to say big part, but bigger than in the movies. And he was the usually the antagonist. He was also in The Rookies, which was a huge cop series at the time, in something called Dirge for Sunday. And then we get to The Poseidon Adventure. Yes. It's one of the earlier Starfucker disaster films the 70s were infamous for. This time, it's about a ship that capsizes and flips upside down with folks trapped below decks. And I've heard many a joke about using Shelley Winters as a flotation device and whatever over the years. Mm-hmm. Gene Hackman's in it. Ernest Borgnine, Red Buttons, Carol Lindley, Roddy McDowell, Stella Stevens, Shelley Winters, Jack Albertson, Pamela Sue Martin, the future Nancy Drew, Arthur O'Connell, Joan Crawford, Leslie Nielsen. I mean, you get the idea. It's a huge thing. I don't know if it was followed by or surrounded by things like the Towering Inferno and Avalanche. Yeah, earthquake around that time period. Yeah, I like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Poseidon Adventure is something I rewatched uh, not too long ago, within the past six months. And I have to say that whole like forty-five minutes when this uh, tsunami hits that ship and turns it over is still pretty impressive as far as spectacle goes. And you're talking of nineteen seventies filmmaking. I don't know how the hell they did that, because this is, this is pre-CGI, you mm-hmm. know? It's like, they must have had some huge-ass rooms that they kept turning over, and this was probably, you know, they talk about hard shoots nowadays, like, I had to walk a mile in these boots and they killed me. These guys were underwater so often, mm-hmm. and they were using probably state-of-the-art underwater cameras at the time, so, like, it had to be them. Yeah. It had to be, it's Gene Hackman you're seeing swimming. It's Shelley Winters she's seeing swimming, or eventually she drowned in that. Not she, but her character. But a very impressive film. Roddy, Roddy's in it for a bit. He he passes early on. But uh, <laughs> a lot of people don't make it, including the star, which is, it's the 70s, yep. which is, you know, wow, you <laughs> you fucking killed off the star. What the hell is this? Yeah. Um, very strange. Also, Roddy does a few weird movies right after this. Next up, he actually does a few more TV series. Again, sticking with the mysteries for the most part. Mission Impossible, he's in the episode called The Puppet. McCloud, you mentioned earlier, an episode called The Park Avenue Rustlers. Barnaby Jones, he's in one called The See Some Evil, Do Some Evil. And then he shows up in what I consider another of his... The, the films that you think of when you think of an actor, his standout moments, which is The Legend of Hell House. This was actually directed by a fellow named John Howe. It's a Richard Matheson screenplay. We had talked his voluminous TV horror work somewhat in our Dan Curtis in the 70s show. So forget that silly Amityville horror or stodgy old films like The Uninvited or The Haunting. This is without any question the scariest haunted house film ever committed to celluloid. Now, keep in mind, this is coming from someone who doesn't even believe in ghosts or UFOs and aliens for that matter. Stay off drugs, people. No, I don't. But there's so much atmosphere and oppressive claustrophobic feel that's less a nicely filmed study of one woman's mental breakdown, like The Haunting, or the bad vibes and reputed pre-internet viral scam of Amityville, and more of a study in supernatural malevolence. You can shift the ghosts, if you will, to something more believable, whether it be bad vibes, demonic forces, or the power of suggestion on the darkness inside all men's souls, whatever you want to call it. 
This film works just as well, if not better, than it serves as a ghost story. It's just a stunning, fog-bound, abandoned castle of a house where awful things happen to any who come to investigate. Roddy gets a reasonably central part of an ensemble cast, which includes the omnipresent ingenue Pamela Franklin, and this sort of sexy Gail Honeycutt going on about orgies and unchained sensuality while trying to arouse poor Roddy, who's more shocked and disgusted by this than aroused, as the sole survivor of the last group of scientists and spiritualists sent to look into the house. He's believably nervous and jittery throughout, but never really overstates his performance even as others overplay and chew the scenery like a trio of mad wolves. And he winds up being the hero at the end. Michael Gow appears briefly as the sinister force behind it all, but like we talked about in the Dan Curtis show, it's a Richard Matheson script. The man was ubiquitous in 70s horror telefilm, cinema, and if I'm not mistaken, airport paperback and short stories for a reason. He knows how to build character and suspense in a claustrophobic setting with an omnipresent feeling of doom for all involved. Whatever the particular subject or source of horror he's working with, it's truly top-notch. The already impressive haunting redone to much greater effect. You got Pamela Franklin, Ryan McDowell, Clive Rebel, Gail Honeycutt, Roland Clover, Michael Gow, credited as Belasco, who actually made the voice of, and Peter Bowles. Some of these names you may recognize, some you won't, but it is really worth looking at, especially if you're into haunted house movies, ghost movies, or just movies that are claustrophobic, where people die off and are in this suggestive sort of atmosphere where you never know what might happen next. So... I do recommend this one. Oh yeah, it's a, it's a great British horror film. It's it's a great. Yeah, you know, I I think it's much better than Haunting. Much better than yeah. Turn of the Screw. Yeah. Much better than the the Nightcomers. Mm-hmm. Films that's often compared to uh, subtextually. But how, how about Don't Look Now? What's better than that? Don't film? Look Now. I like it much better than Don't Look Now. It's so much more direct and. The cast is really good. I mean, it's claustrophobic, you know. And the only thing I found as good as this was its pseudo-remake with um, the Taken guy, Liam Neeson. I didn't even know they made one one day, and I'm on Netflix, and I said, oh, they remade this. How the hell did I not know it? Yeah, I said, what are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I completely forgot that they remade The Legend of Hell House with Liam Neeson, of all people. And I thought that was pretty good. And, uh, I'll have to look into that. Anyway, Legend of Hellhouse is great. Great performance by Roddy. He's, yeah. He becomes a powerhouse by the end of the film. We don't, I don't want to give too much away. Yeah. I do believe that, conjecture on my part, this film may have affected Pamela Franklin because suddenly she was the it girl the moment. She kind of withdrew much after this movie. Yeah. And she really seems scared and freaked out. So who knows? Maybe she really was freaked out. I have no idea. But Roddy, like you said, he really takes this role and runs with it. Uh-huh. At first, very quiet in the shadows. I mean, it's, it's like a good power ballad. You know, At first, it's really yeah. calm and quiet and subdued. And then it builds. And all of a sudden, you start getting to this section where he's like, okay, now he's getting nervous. He's getting uptight, whatever. And all of a sudden, kaboom. And he really lets it rip. And he's the hero. And that's like just amazing. Like a Brian Adams song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway. <laughs> wow. A Canada. You know, we knew somebody that got married to a Brian Adams song. <laughs> well, that, that's, In well Canada. That a, that's, that's a good example, though. Everything I do. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway. Oh, that's, that's a good example. <laughs> So next up, he does, we mentioned Battlefield Planet of the Apes, he does Macmillan and Wife. It's a fun Rock Hudson, Jill St. John series that revolved mostly around the latter's charming joie de vivre and naivete and Hudson's gruff likability and patience with her. It's a great couple show, if I'm using it in hindsight. Notice that they're never exactly passionate kisses, or they don't really seem to be newlyweds in a lot of ways. 
But, you know, they do fake it pretty well. I know my folks were fooled. My father's totally in shock when he found out about Rock. Roddy is actually on one of the best episodes of the series where Mac goes back to his homeland of Scotland to claim an inheritance of the family castle or some such, and many a murder and tossing of the caber ensue. Next, he moves to Love American Style, which is a really cheesy-ass show. Lowbrow comedy of the decade. Think about, oh, if I guess if you made an episodic Love Boat sort of comedy show that felt a little bit laughing in a lot of respects he shows up in a couple of these things then he winds up in the snoop sisters a totally forgotten all too brief series that we would have forgotten about too if it didn't show up on a set of mcmillan life that we had gotten with helen hayes of all people as the right. more likable and knowing half of a couple of silver-haired mystery solvers it's much much better than the annoying murder she wrote or matlock which followed in its footsteps i do recommend if you have not seen it go out and find this if you get the box set of mcmillan wife it's on there otherwise it's also available separately only a couple of episodes but if you like that kind of stuff you will love this if you hate those two shows i just mentioned which i do you'll still like it it's really <laughs> it's really pretty good so next up dirty mary crazy larry which we talked about in our peter fonda show ronnie actually gets a huge part at the start of the film as the terrified supermarket manager they rob by briefly holding his wife hostage in a home invasion which also kicks off the long long cross-country manhunt and chase that the rest of the film revolves around but strangely he was uncredited i never figured out why they did that but he's in a good 20 minutes of the film and fairly central to it as well. So, let's see, you mentioned the, the Planet of the Apes TV series, Police Woman, he pops up on, Angie Dickinson's main claim to fame, in an episode called Pawns of Power. Now he goes on to Mean Johnny Barrows. All right, it's one of my all-time least favorite black exploitation films, and we did a show on him, I love the genre so much. This is also Fred Williamson's directorial debut. I met the Hammer a few years ago, and while it was pretty damn funny that he thought he could mack on my wife and was selling Playgirl photos of himself, he's kind of like the Black Christopher Lee. He's a real arrogant type that's irrefutably convinced of his own self-importance, but unlike Lee, without a hell of a lot to back it up. Yeah. I mean, just check out the films he made under his own authorship and direction, and you'll see what I mean. Very different from other black exploitation and television stars we've met, like Isaac Hayes, Jim Kelly, Haywood Nelson, more on par with hoity-toity types like Pam Greer, who is actually pretty friendly to my wife, and Richard Roundtree, but more of a street-level hustler. Essentially, Williamson's a Vietnam vet, dishonorably discharged for decking some shithead sergeant, just like the great uncle I was named after, mind, who comes back and can't land work. He winds up on the soup line, meaning a weird Elliot Gould cameo as a highfalutin bum, and working crap jobs for shitheads who make him bust ass and then refuse to pay him. That's Archie Armstrong, by the way. His luck seems to change when he gets a little sympathy and a job offer from the local mob head and his lady friend. And when he gets convinced that a rival faction kidnapped and prostituted the girl, he's dumb and angry enough to become the cleanup man. Of course... It's all one big double cross and he's being used. Roddy's in another one of his amusing if rare tough guy player roles as a certain someone's lover and co-conspirator, but he's not incredibly convincing and he's not on screen half as much as you might hope. Notables in this one, Beyond Fred and Roddy, Stuart Whitman, Orgy Armstrong I mentioned, Elliot Gould I mentioned, James Brown, who's in the police sergeant, I don't think it's the real James Brown, and Leon Isaac Kennedy who wound up doing the penitentiary series is in this. Yeah, this is... Uh... <laughs> Fred Williamson. Oh, man. <laughs> He's a piece He's of a work. He's a piece of work, Fred. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's done. He's done a lot of these things. Where he's the director of the Star, because I'm Fred Williamson. But some of them are pretty good, and some of them are real. 
terrible. What's funny is I like films that he didn't direct but was in, like Bucktown. Yeah. Or even Three the Hard Way. I like films that he did direct that nobody likes, like Death Journey. But the yeah. ones that everybody talks about that he did, oof. <laughs> horrible. Yeah, I, I, I don't think... I wouldn't say this is, like, horrible, like, 100%. He calls in a lot of favors, though. I mean, like, yeah. almost all these things... He had Tony Curtis, he had James Darren. He calls in a lot of favors, so it makes you wonder, like, who he's playing poker with and having cigars with. Yeah. Because sometimes... And, you know, and since Fred produced these things as well... And he had a tough time getting distribution. It'd be, you'd be on the deuce back in the day. I remember back in the the mid-70s, walking down 42nd Street, and you would see a lot of these Fred Williamson pictures, and then you would look at the poster, which was kind of like almost hand-drawn, bad artwork. <laughs> and you look at the cast, and it was like, you know, amazing people, like, you know, not slumming yet people, you know? And it was like, wow, they're slumming already? But no, they were favorites he did. And he, they weren't in these these films for long you know it was just that he called somebody in for a day but that name enabled him to get funding you know that's the way it worked especially back then yeah this picture it becomes interchangeable at one point in time years ago I wanted to see every Fred Williamson film I could then I didn't yeah basically if you want to see Fred Williamson films stick with the ones before he started directing and producing yeah. <laughs> Boss, uh, which is the cleverly retitled version of Boss, <clears throat> the original title. <laughs> so that was a good one, by the way. So after he does a bunch of things, like he shows up on, I don't understand, Laughing was off the year in the early 70s, but somehow it was back again for 77 for him to do a guest role. You know, a couple of strange things, like Fantastic Journey, which was a TV series. I didn't know Fantastic Journey had a TV series. I mean, I'm thinking Fantastic Voyage. Oh, yeah, yeah. Fantastic Journey was with that guy. He did some Euro uh, sci-fi stuff. What the hell was his name? It wasn't very good, but it was, you know, it was all right. Yeah, some more mystery things. Harry O, Hillary Queen. And then he does Laser Blast. We talked this one in our Full Moon show when we talked about Dave Dakota and all the Full Moon Pictures, Empire. Wow, you've been around that long, huh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a typical 70s outsider kid being bullied and trying to get laid and find acceptance picture. There were so many of these things back then. Except that in the middle of all the usual hijinks and drama, the kid in question stumbles across an alien spacecraft and gets a pendant that makes him go all green-faced man-wolf and grow this weird laser gun on his arm. It was pretty cool and freaky as a kid and stupidly entertaining as an adult. The only names here are the infamous Cheryl Rainbow Smith as the would-be girlfriend, and a few character actors who show up briefly, Eddie Deason, Keenan Hell Satan, Wynn, and Roddy, who doesn't show up until halfway through the film as the doctor he goes to see, about trying to remove the amulet from his chest, but like the man-wolf, it's already grown into part of him. It's another effective cameo, but an important one, as his subsequent death casts the eye of suspicion on our protagonist, which eventually leads to the film's denouement. So, anything you want to say about this one that you didn't say about last time? <laughs> mm, no, no. But, yeah, it, Embryo's from the same year, or maybe a year before, which is the weird Rock Hudson picture. Yes, they teamed up again. That I mentioned before when we were discussing Pretty Mates. This is another one of those... I think I think McMillan and wife may have been toured or had already ended on, on television. Mm-hmm. Rock teamed up with Ralph Nelson, who's previous to this film, is primarily known as the director as of the notoriously violent Soldier Blue, the western that people mistook for a Euro western because it just was so brutal. Embryo had Rock as a scientist who was obsessed, a bit of a different role for him, obsessed with creating life. And he grows a Bobber Carrera in the, in the lab. 
not a bad thing to grow. And then <laughs> stop. Yeah, she was the it girl for a while, and um, and I interviewed Barbara a few years ago, and uh, I was talking about that bomb. Whatever happened to her Vampirella role? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, but I, I I don't know. I can't remember if I brought up this film or not because it's it's a touchy picture to bring up because it's a strange movie. It's it's because he he te you know he creates the embryo, he creates her, and he teaches her, like he educates her, and then sex. You know, so it's a it's a very odd movie that got a lot of flack for a lot of different reasons. Roddy's in it briefly as I think a help you out kind of thing. A small cameo. He's virtually unmemorable in this. The film's not very memorable except for being cause celebrity at the time of Did they really do yeah. that? I mean one of the few times Rock got Rock Hudson got into Playboy, <laughs> you know. <laughs> with the sex and the cinema issue. And you can see why if you think about the subtext there. So let's leave it at that. Let's leave it at that. So next up he does Circle of Iron, which is another weird one. A bizarre, mystical, zen-like film originally written by Bruce Lee, who planned a star. Strangely, the co-authors are none other than one of Bruce's famous students, James Coburn, for the In Like Flint series, for example. And 60s TV writer-producer Sterling Sillivan. What? It's some nonsense about the path to become a true martial artist, but think more of the Holy Mountain than Kung Fu the series. And maybe that's what's wrong with it as they start folks like David Carradine for the second time stepping into a role Bruce created for himself. Ahem. Christopher Lee. Roddy, and if you can believe it, Eli Wallach. Seriously, this is a really a movie about where you go, I won't lead, as Danzig once put it, with some very obvious parallels and ties to the Fool Magician card of the Tarot and the Pursuit of Magic per se, and let's leave it at that. <laughs> Moving towards life. And yet, it's presented as part of a pretty bad martial arts film, come psychedelic drug trip head film. Roddy's got another cameo as the guy in charge of the low-rent martial arts tournament that kicks the film off. There's a really ugly guy who's like an old man version of Miles O'Keefe. He gets disqualified from his win and winds up wandering around looking for a guru, encountering weirdos with misguided attempts to find wisdom, like Wallach. Oh, that was Jeff Cooper, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Wallach is trying to abnegate his physical desires by boiling in a barrel of oil before following a blind man who will literally not lead him to his ultimate goal, which he's told he's already achieved. Despite the sheer inanity of the film, it's fascinating. As you can tell, even as a novice or outsider, there's something deeper being said here. But ultimately, Ultimately, it's as aimless as our hero's quest. But if, like yours truly, you love films like Gradiva, Born of Fire, Crowley, The Holy Mountain, you should see similarly right at home with this one. So if I didn't already mention, Christopher Lee is also a part of this as the final boss, if you will. No, I think you I think you mentioned Joe Dorowski, and that, that's, a, that's, that's good. Yeah, a good way to look at this because it's, it's talky, too. For a film that wants to be about martial arts zen of yeah. uh, martial arts and and one's physical as well as uh, mental and spiritual journey there's a lot of talking and the dialogue is just so mystical yeah and, and it kind of makes me look at James Coburn a lot differently after watching this because like because you know he was a student he was a yes, student was. to Bruce Lee him and uh, Steve McQueen I was going to say McQueen uh, yeah and we know McQueen was a hard partier so you know but yeah it's very it's a mystifying film. Yeah. So, but it's not a likable film either. I mean, movies, there are a few movies like this that you could like, and that you could refer to them years later. You know, you could just like them in hindsight more, yeah. you know? More this is not a likable film. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah, this one kind of is 
Weird. So next up, he shows up on the Wonder Woman TV series in two different episodes. Uh, the Fine Art of Crime is one character, and The Man Who Made Volcanoes is another. They're both weird second season episodes where Roddy's an art connoisseur who turns people into living statues and uses the steel fine art and sculpture for him. And the other one, he's a mad scientist who can create volcanoes on demand, which leaves the Chinese, Russians, and U.S. competing to capture his tech for themselves. He shows up on Super Train, which is, I barely remember it, but it was a TV series at the time that basically, I guess, kind of like the Love Boat, but more, sometimes there'd be drama, sometimes they'd be, they kind of changed the tone as they went along. So I guess maybe you can almost say Fantasy Island, but the, but the shtick on this one was they were on a train going cross-country. Going fast. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> heart to Heart, which I mentioned before with Lionel Stander. He winds up in Buck Rogers in the 25th century in Planet of the Slave Girls as the governor. He winds up in Mork and Mindy as Chuck the Robot. Of course, he's a voice only. And then he winds up in the black hole, once again, as the voice only for Vincent. Those of you who've seen this really surprisingly dark and metaphysically elusive Disney film, I always loved this movie. And I was always shocked that it came out through Disney's Aegis. But, yeah, I mean, for as oddly spiritual and dark sci-fi as it is, they've got to have the usual kid sidekick, friendly sidekick. And that's who he is. He's like the robot that floats around. Again, this was a big thing, just like Space 1999. Not as big as Planet of the Apes, but it was a huge thing for kids in the days before and just immediately after Star Wars debuted in terms of action figures and God knows what else. And it's got a great lead performance by Robert Foster who, you know, doesn't get enough work. Yeah, and there's a lot of people in this. Except that it it was a black hole for Disney financially. They poured so much money into this picture. They spent so much on the elaborate effects. Yes. I think when they saw they had a very dark movie, and then when people were, you know, Disney at the time did not know how to market anything that wasn't a, let's put it in quotes, Disney film. You know what I'm saying? And so, uh, it's a huge black hole financially for them, and they barely released it on tape or anything for a long time. And they actually did a couple of dark films around this period. Remember Watcher in the Woods? But this one here was actually the best one. You had Max Mancino and the damn thing. Maximilian Schell, Ernest Borgnine. I mean, these were not names to sneeze at. And they're in this really freaking dark film that ostensibly is about finding a space station that's right around the Schwarzschild radius of a black hole on the edge of space and doesn't fall into it somehow, which is already a scientific anomaly. And it turns into this bizarre metaphysical thing about this guy who wants to be God and then you start seeing all this psychedelic shit at the end and there's lots of deaths and corpses being used reanimated as robots you know half like cyborg type things very very dark and fascinating film that ties a lot to early 70s sci-fi like silent running mm. and yet it also has the i don't want to say kid factor but it has the feel of something like a moonraker as well it's a really fascinating period piece of 1979 and in terms of Disney films, even now that they're doing stuff that's, you know, I don't want to say darker, but, you know, the superhero films and whatever else, it really stands out. This is kind of like their sine qua non, if you will. If, if you're going to say something about Disney to me, this is what I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. Love this film. Always did. So in the theater, too. So next up, unless you got something to say outside that, I mm-hmm. already said. Scavenger Hunt. So here, it's this is a fun but stupid Starfucker comedy of the era. Somewhat akin to It's a Mad Mad World, but with a lot less of that painful 60s borscht, or perhaps equally pointedly, the Cannonball Run, which was from right around the same time. Vincent Price is a rich nut job who spends 
sends all his relatives and employees on a scavenger hunt, the winner of which inherits the fortune. They split into several teams and much chaos ensues, particularly when they have to do things like steal the raccoon tail off a Hells Angels chopper or the gold-plated toilet from the Ritz Hotel. Roddy's the butler and on a team with a maid to cook and a chauffeur. It's pretty dumb, but I enjoyed it on those endlessly repeated HBO viewings many a year back. Mm-hmm. And it really hasn't changed much during a recent viewing. I do own this thing. I do enjoy it. I've seen it several times. A lot of people in this. Richard Benjamin, James Coco, Scatman Crothers, who was also the voice of Hong Kong Fui, Ruth Gordon, Cloris Leachman. I mean, these are names that were known from Mel Brooks films and things like that. Cleveland Little, Roddy McDowell, Robert Morley, Richard Mulligan, Tony Randall, Dirk Benedict, Willie Ames from Charles and George, and Cut and Run. Stephen First from the Animal House TV series. Meatloaf showing up once again after Rocky Horror. Vincent Price, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Stuart Pankin from Not Necessarily the News, Henry Pollock II from Webster. I mean, this is a huge-ass cast. But you have to kind of like these stupid-ass films like I had mentioned, like It's a Mad Mad World or The Cannibal Run, just with a little bit less of the 60s feel and a little bit more of the early 80s feel to it. I do enjoy it. And it, it was better than The Big Bus. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Once again, that was a 60s one. So anything you want to say about it otherwise? or No. All right, so next he goes to The Martian Chronicles, which was a TV miniseries that, again, I saw live and loved. It's this thoughtful, melancholy miniseries that explores the idea that the colonization of space would merely spread the mistakes of mankind that are increasingly destroying this planet to a more galactic scale. Roddy's one of a pair of priests sent to settle and proselytize Mars, but he's more the straight man to a hammy Fritz Weaver who gets all St. Francis over some glowing Martian orbs before going all Ken Russell with a weird personal vision of the crucified Christ. It's actually one of the least memorable stories between the Nicholas Hammond one where he visits their relatives in the old hometown only to find out that it was a Martian trap to kill off invaders, the Bernie Casey Rock Hudson one where Casey flips out and defects after he finds parallels in some Martian ruins to the Black Experience, and the weird Darren McCavin one where he's the huckster who opens a cowboy saloon, but he does continue on for another episode hanging around with Hudson and Barry Morris who built and lives with a robot wife and daughter. Again, he doesn't have a lot to do. It's something that's a definite pattern with respect to his film roles. Michael Anderson directed this. Obviously, Ray Bradbury was behind the writing, but Richard Matheson that screenplay. Rock Hudson's in this, Gil Honeycutt, Bernie Casey I mentioned, Nicholas Hammond, Darren McGovern, Bernadette Peters, Joyce Van Patten, Fritz Weaver, John Finch from Frenzy, Barry Morse from Space 1999, Nairi Dawn Porter from The Protectors. This is not another cast to sneeze at. This was the, the era of bringing in everybody we can possibly think of and can afford and that is not busy this week to populate our film or miniseries or TV show or whatever the hell. And, you know, again, I thought it was actually pretty good. And it's surprisingly, not necessarily dark, but thoughtful, pensive. I don't know. It just, it never connected with me. I, I, you know, I saw it and I just, I, I didn't get anything out of it. And I, I read the Bradbury book and I found that problematic. So... (laughs) So I was like hoping this would be better. And then yeah, you see this this interesting cast and then I don't know, I think the direction was always off and depending on which episode and how many people I mean it's it's probably something you're gonna see return. I got the feeling. You probably will see another Martian Chronicles one day. Yeah, that's probably true. And it'll star Chris Hemsworth and <laughs> you know, it's that kind of thing, you know, but uh yeah, it just didn't connect with me. But it was important back in its day. So after doing an episode of Here's Boomer, one of those dog uh, shows and kid show stuff, he does a film that I haven't seen for 
oh god since it came out Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen they did a couple of weird attempts to bring back characters that would not be considered politically correct in the very early 80s Fu Manchu I know Peter Sellers did that as his last oh the Phoenix plot Dr. Fu Manchu which was bad and then this one here which I honestly don't even remember but it couldn't have been too good and of course they were critically reviled so yeah it was bad because it had uh, Peter Ustinov as Charlie Chan you know that great Asian actor (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> like Sidney Toller and Warner Oland and uh, who else did that? <laughs> Sidney Toller and Warner Oland were an Asian. <laughs> <laughs> There's another one too. I just can't remember his name. This thing too was all over HBO back in the day. Yes, but that's probably the last time I've seen it. So he does another Agatha Christie adaptation mystery thing, Evil Under the Sun. He's in Class of 1984, which those of you might remember, sort of, I don't know, it's post-apocalyptic, but it was like a gangbanger type movie of the era. And so supposed to be futuristic, but I don't know how futuristic it was. Well, it was, it was, yeah, it was semi-futuristic with, oh gosh, was this the students or the teaching people at the... See, I get confused with Class of 1999, where they had all the punks, and it was actually supposed to be like post-apocalyptic. I get confused too or was like one just to follow up with the other home members I can't wait hold on. give me a second now I'm curious yeah <laughs> yeah I don't remember anything about it <laughs> <laughs> no, that makes two the of next us. film I like a lot though Right, so he's still doing TV. He does Fantasy Island a couple episodes where he's playing uh, the devil. Apparently, one of them is actually music because he's playing a cast member named Richard Simmons. What? <laughs> he's on Fairy Tale Theater. One episode of Rapunzel as the narrator. He's on Tales of the Gold Monkey, which is a kind of forgotten TV series that came up in the wake of Indiana Jones. Isn't too bad. I haven't seen it in years, but yeah. and. Same here. I don't remember it being bad at all. I remember it being fantastic, but, you know, kind of a throwback, I guess, 40s era adventure serial sort of a thing. And he's one of the regulars on it. He plays a Frenchman, Bon Chance Louis. And then he does Fright Night. Now, this is <laughs> more gay actors per square foot of celluloid than anything this side of Can't Stop the Music, with Roddy, Married with Children's Amanda Beers, and Stephen Jeffries, a.k.a. gay porn star Sam Ritter. It's directed by Tom Holland, who's also responsible for Psycho 2 with Tony Perkins. I'm sure you can see how that relates. Unsurprisingly, Bierce is reluctant to put out for her geeky boyfriend, William Ragsdale, who would continue his career of blue ball boyfriend at Lesbian Girls as Ellen DeGeneres' boyfriend on Ellen a few years later. He gets obsessed with peeping on his new next-door neighbor, Chris Sarandon. No comment, it's too obvious a subtext. Who, turns out, may be a vampire. He pays a visit to his old pal Stephen Jeffries, the weird, nervous horror fan Evil Ed, whose tongue-in-cheek advice keeps the dope alive when the neighbor pays a nocturnal visit. <clears throat> he then stalks TV vampire star Roddy, thinking he's some expert on vampirism rather than just a washed-up actor and horror host. Eventually, the two team up against an increasing group of vampires, including the newly vampirized, even more over-the-top Jeffries, and an obsessed Beers. And all is well until the inevitable sequel that I didn't even recall existed. As 80s horror film goes, and I put that in quotes, which means pretty much slashers or horror comedies, that's all you get. It's fair to middling, but that's really not saying a lot. And this one seriously screams, Lavender Screen, from minute one for those looking for such. I like this film a lot. <laughs> I do. I, I really, I always enjoyed the hell out of this movie. And, jeez. Oh, Hell, I had a Fright Night panel. <laughs> I did, years ago, with the surviving people. Nice. Yes, but you're going to laugh. You're going to laugh. Yeah. Amanda Beers doesn't look anything like Amanda Beers anymore. Really? She grew her hair out? 
And I didn't realize when they I talked to Ragsdale, had Chris Sarandon, well, Roddy's dead, of course, yeah. and had Jonathan Stark and Stephen Jeffries came up. Wow. And they all look good. And I was like, who's the lady? And then and then Ragsdale turns to me and says, it's Amanda. Oh, <laughs> I thought, I, I didn't even know she was there. Wow. So I quickly had to like, so uh, uh, it's, on t- it's on YouTube somewhere. It's hilarious. It's like a full four I made. I was like, I didn't even know she was there. She's the star of the movie. Wow. <laughs> anyway, I really like this film because they got away with so much dripping oh, yeah. gay subtext in this thing. I mean, it's especially not even subtext. <laughs> well, when Sarandon is trying to woo Ragsdale to the vampire ways, then, oh, you forgot. He's got this guy, Jonathan Stark. That is his familiar. Remember? Yes. 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 And wait, what's going on there? Uh-huh. Y'all. And, and then he shows up at he shows up at that is it a bar or disco and he he tries to, to like hypnotize and and woo Amanda Beers but like Ragsdale's looking at him from across the room like what are they doing here you know yep I really liked it I liked the tribute to Peter Vincent you know Roddy McDowell's character Peter Cushing been surprised making him like a TV actor who knows he's doing something really cheesy and he like a you know introducing. Like Zachary, you know, Zachary type of yeah. thing. And that's what his character is. Then the kid sees it and he believes that he really does fight vampires. I like I like that kind of thing. It, it spoke to my childhood, I think. That's why I liked it. And let's, it would be like, come on, Zachary, help me fight monsters. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're kidding? You're not kidding, you know? It's that kind of thing. Like it, 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 sometimes, sometimes things connect. And Tom Holland did a really, I did much better than Tom Holland's Child's Play, which already turned into too many movies, including the first one. Yeah, he did a really good job with this. I really enjoyed this film. I think Roddy knocks it out of the park, much in a different way, but much like he did with Legend of Hell House. Here he is later in his career, and he really knocks it out of the park. But the last portion of the movie, because he tells the kid, "No, forget it." I'm going to go have a drink. I'm not going to help you fight vampires. They don't exist. And then he realizes they do. You know, he's like, I'm an actor, you know? Yep. So, uh, really good. I always enjoyed it. Now, it it did it did good business. It didn't do huge business, but there was a sequel. But a lot of people didn't come back. Yeah, I didn't remember there was one. Yeah, and it was about four years later, and... I forgot to ask Sarandon why he didn't come back. I guess sometimes people don't want to remember some things. It's like years later, and it's like it's a female vampire this time, and Amanda Bears didn't come back, so it's a different girl who doesn't look anything like her. It was very weak, although it had some moments, because it was directed by Tommy Lee Wallace, who did one of the early John Carpenter uh, Halloween pictures. So it wasn't terrible, but it was definitely a, a, an inferior sequel. Well, Chucky has something to say to you about your comments about Child's Play. Fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) It's the only line I remember from that film. (laughs) But in terms of the Amanda Bears thing, she always reminded me of a less busty Erica Boyer. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But anyway, uh, Loose Ends fans out there. I wonder why somebody like Vinegar Syndrome hasn't put out Loose Ends yet. But anyway, after this wonderful film, we move on (laughs) to (laughs) the GoBots. Believe it or not, the cheap Transformers knockoff, and he plays the the voice of Nugget. Then he winds up in 
the Wizard TV series. This is not the famous film that was basically a commercial for Nintendo. This was the, with Fred Savage, this was the one that was a TV series with that midget, the guy David Rappaport, and he shows up in one episode, once again as the voice of a robot, so he's not really acting on screen. Same year, he shows up in Overboard, which is another effective bit part as Goldie Hawn's much put upon butler. This is the famous Goldie Hawn, Kurt Russell film, where she's a rich bitch that winds up losing her memory and winds up with the construction work that she hired and abused to uh, do some work on her boat or whatever and he winds up taking her in and convincing her that she's part of the family and that they're married or whatever which you know questionable overtones aside actually resulted in a equally amusing if not better Korean drama called Couple or Trouble which is really really good I do recommend that with a, a girl that was hot for her for a while Hanya Sol Leslie Kim I think her was her American name so after that he winds up in Remo Williams which is a TV movie not the, the actual movie that you remember Remo Williams the Prophecy Fright Night Part 2 as you mentioned let's see what else he winds up in a couple more mysteries I had mentioned Murder She Wrote in Matlock sure enough he's in two episodes each of those and then he winds up in getting towards the end of his career Cutting Class, which is a really, I don't want to say bad, but not one of the high-end slashers, just kind of towards the bottom. With a kind of cute Gil Sholin of Popcorn and Curse 2 the Bite, this is mainly known for being the sole slasher of a young Brad Pitt. Donovan's son, Donovan Leach Jr., proves he's as much of a footnote to cinema as his father was to the hippie folk scene in a distinguished career that includes Breaking 2 Electric Boogaloo, that forgettably awful remake of And God Created a Woman with Rebecca DeMornay, the gruesome Shawnee Smith Blob remake, and a Marrow Van Peebles vehicle. Yes, he went far in cinema. Martin Mull is the comic relief father. Roddy is the horny perp principal who keeps getting shown to bend over so we can get fan service panty shots which wind up being the best part of the movie and there's a twist ending where the folks you expect to be here on villain turn out to be swapped that's about it so anything you want to say about this one what movie was this I remember it. (laughs) (laughs) This is a lot right there, folks. So next up, he does another horror, this time a better one, thankfully. Shockma. High-tech D&D LARPing at a med school where they do research on violence in apes. It's all Roddy's fault. As Roddy plays Games Master and the players wander the building searching for clues to, quote, save the princess, who's one of the guy's little sister, while tracked by computer monitoring. A baboon that's been experimented on with one of those 28 Days Later style rage drugs, and this is an accident, by the way, that Roddy caused, is running loose, murdering everyone, and he's one of the first. It's a typically claustrophobic, semi-hospital horror along the lines of Halloween 2 or X-Ray, just set in more of a skyscraper university milieu. As slashes as period go, it's actually pretty effective, and Roddy's likably weird as this Ursa's dungeon master of a professor-slash-surgeon. Unfortunately, like I said, he does bite it before the halfway mark. Christopher Atkins of the Blue Lagoon is the star, and that's about all you'd recognize from this Amanda Wiss, Ari Myers, who the fuck are they? I remember renting it on VHS. Period. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so, he wants to a couple more things. This TV miniseries that you might remember of Inconvenient Woman. He's on the new Lassie, going back to his child things. Legend of Prince Valiant, if you remember the cartoon TV series. He was King Frederick in one episode. Quantum Leap, he shows up in one episode. Darkwing Duck, he shows up as the voice in one episode. We're really getting towards the end of his career and, honestly, life. Mirror, Mirror, Raven Dance. Mirror 2, I should say. The first one I had seen that had the cute Rainbow Harvest, who was kind of the sexier version of Winona Ryder. This one has Mark Ruffalo, and I don't remember ever seeing it. Did you did you note though that the last ten, fifteen, or twenty things he's done pretty much primarily are voiceovers? Yeah. Yes. 
Very interesting. I mean, uh, they're for a variety of things, from documentaries to, like, the docu about Mary Pickford. He did contribute to A Bug's Life, that very popular CGI thing. But that was like a one-off, because the majority of the stuff he was doing was voice work. Yeah, Gargoyles, um, TV series, all kinds of stuff like that. Pinky in the Brain. I saw something I wanted to mention, because I, I actually forgot about this. He was wrecking world... <laughs> world-renowned photographer in real life, too. He had... His photographs were on the cover of Look, Life magazine, Vogue, Collier's. Wow. And he liked to take pictures of his celebrity friends. What about the ones we never saw? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and he has several books attributed to him, a collection of his photographs. Interesting. I didn't even know that. Yeah, yeah. So well, I guess when you're hanging out with all these celebs, you know. But yeah, he did a lot of voiceovers. At this point, basically, that's all he's doing. Like you said, he does Batman the Animated Series he, where he's the Mad Hatter for several episodes. He does the Tick as the Breadmaster for several episodes. He does the Superman cartoon series also as the Mad Hatter. He's in A Bug's Life, like you mentioned. He's in Godzilla the series. He's in Pinky the Brain. He's in Gargoyles. You know, it's basically once you leave Mirror Mirror 2 or even going back a little bit before that and going to Shockma, that's it. You know, for the next eight years, he's doing mostly cartoon voiceovers. And then in 98, he was 70 years old and he died. I guess he was a smoker because he died of lung cancer. Uh, yeah, I was surprised. I, I don't recall him. I mean, there are actors like, you know, we talked about all this. We referred to all these TV shows. Uh, Jack Cass, he was one very popular character actor. There many of them who you were always smoking pipes, cigars, cigarettes. On camera, even. On camera, yes, in these TV shows and these films. And I very, really... I don't remember him ever smoking on camera. I, yeah, I don't remember Roddy McDowell ever smoking on camera. Well, he may have, of course, and we just forgot about it, but it wasn't omnipresent like it was with some of these other people. So it was a bit of a shock, actually. I think that as part of what I was mentioning earlier, how he was always pretty classy. I mean, you know, not that there's anything wrong with people, like, knowing about your orientation or that you smoke or whatever the hell else, but he always kind of kept his life, his private life was private. Nothing to do with anything he was doing on screen. Yeah, yeah. There's even a Wikipedia note that says here, although McDowell made no public statements about his sexual orientation, several authors claimed he was discreetly gay. Now, he was taken care of by a male friend during his final months yes. in his home, and it's good to have anybody help you out you know, when you're laughing like that. Also, a side note, the FBI raided his home in 1974. Yes, yes. Go ahead, tell about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, apparently, Roddy had like video cassettes before they existed. Mm-hmm. Over 160 millimeter film prints. Nobody to this day they haven't said what the content of those were. They claim they're going but, after him for copyright violations, but they let them go. So who knows what was really going on? Who knows? Who knows what was really going on there? Yeah. He also had purchased Errol Flynn's home cinema films. What does that mean? Uh, Earl Flint's home movies, I guess. Some pornos. <laughs> I'm wondering if this was a collection of <clears throat> films. Yeah. And because he was Roddy McDowell, and he was he was the Ivy Snowboy, like I said before, you know, like yep. Rockwatts, clean people, and he had a lot of friends in Hollywood, you know, and so that's the case. So 
I think we tied it up, right? Yeah, I think that's basically it. You know, just to sum it up, like we had just kind of mentioned, no matter what his orientation, no matter what his predilections in terms of, you know, the fact that he was obviously a smoker, because otherwise you won't die of lung cancer unless you're, you know, sucking in a lot of asbestos or working in a popcorn factory. This is kind of a given. He kind of kept things to himself, and wherever he popped up, however short or brief a role he got, he always reined it in and yet was memorable. He was the person you will remember being there. Yes, he could get pretty damn fidgety, and he could really get angry and really be like you had said, sort of scary, where he would be intimidating as a criminal or some such, mm-hmm. but never over the top, even though you would think, okay, someone that's this fidgety would really kind of freak out, like even a Tony Perkins, who's also not that effusive, would still kind of get like, oh, jeez, yeah, whatever, it's kind of overacting. Right. You don't really see that with Roddy. So, overall, all I could say is the guy was a class act. He was a real character in that sense, as in terms of a character actor and in terms of as a person. He really kind of kept things things, I don't know, what do you want to say, above board? I mean, it's hard to describe yeah. this, what I'm trying to get at here, but it was never in your face. He's not going all, I don't know, scissor sisters or some shit on you. He's kind right. of right. Uh, right. reining it in. And he is what he is, but nonetheless, he managed to handle everything with a measure of decorum, which you just don't see nowadays. People are just not that classy. Oh, you don't see that. You don't see, you don't see that. And, and he really went over the top. Yeah. You know, from what we've seen, what we've both seen, he also rarely went over the top with <laughs> the combination of television stuff and the variety, huge variety of film work he did. You know, while he wasn't tremendously, and while he didn't do like 100 films, he did do enough parts and he made the most of his little juicy roles. Yeah. Really good. Class act. Yeah, there you go. Roddy McDowell, class act. Just the fact that he survived being a child actor and managed to become a much bigger actor and more well-known for his adult roles, that already says a lot. Because you can just look. You know, look up child actor and you'll see a lot of tragic stories, if you will. He is not one of them by any means. All right, so thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat on Roddy McDowell. Next week, our late-in-the-run Eddie Lovell correspondent from Scotland regularly brought up as a sort of bemused reality check the fact that his grandmother's milkman was none other than Sean Connery, a prophet has no honor in his own country, supposedly an amateur bodybuilder, though you probably never know it from what you see on Lloyd, and an ex-Royal Navy man. Connery was a milkman, both as a youth and an adult, a truck driver, an artist model, a laborer, God knows how many jobs, but all that changed turning down all manner of blue-collar jobs and manual labor, supposedly even a shot at being a pro footballer, he made a crucial right turn into acting, and give or take 10 years working his way through inconsequential bit parts in westerns, Disney pictures, and such like that. The rest is history, because in 1962, he took on the role of Ian Fleming's super spy James Bond, one rejigger to the fantasies and hopes of its day, all tech gadgets and Cold War gravitas, needed into a pulp action adventure series unlike any other, but which spawned literal hundreds of imitators globally, most notably the creamies, Edgar Wallace and Mabusa films and Jerry Cotton's series out of Germany and ridiculous numbers of Italian, French, British and Spanish Europe spy pictures. Hell, even washed up crooners like Dean Martin and tongue-in-cheek types like Tony Randall and the James Coburn In Like Flint series got into the act domestically. Tonight, we're going to tackle some of the most notable films he's been front and center for, from poorly sung Irishmen chasing leprechauns, to tout thrillers from bizarre Euro-westerns and greedy soul-searching 70s cop dramas, to weird allegories about sex and society, lousy disaster films, midgets, 
knights, monks, evil knights, badly accented Russian sub-commanders, awkward Alan Moore adaptations, even Indiana Jones' father. We've taken on his more famous series twice over, but this is virgin territory, so stay tuned as we tackle the non-Bond films of Sean Connery, only here on Weird Scenes, Sean Connery Beyond Bond. And again, those of you who want to find us now, we are, of course, at weirdscenes1.wordpress.com, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, at weirdscenes1 on Twitter, and our new sites, thirdeyescinema.podbean.com, and we're also on iTunes under the Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes and Cynical My Podcast, and you will be ID 5534020444 for those of you so inclined. If you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or your filmmaker would like to join us on here, drop us a line on our Facebook page or on our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. Weird Scenes and Seth Goldmine brought to you by the new improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. Thank you all for listening, and we'll be back with another fun, entertaining show. Look forward to it, we have more to come. Alright, so we will see you all next time. at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the province of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurd and look at the headlines politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. 
Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of new age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner and fellow seekers of truth in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself. Discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seeds Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. <laughs> 